Okay, never mind. According to his promise, that wasn't recorded, was it? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in Matthew 24, if you would. Matthew 24, we have parallel texts in Mark 13 and Luke 21, and we will bring them in um, appropriately, although the bulk of our material comes from Matthew 24. We're ready to begin today what is often referred to as the Mount Olivet Discourse. However, the harmony of the Gospels you're following does not call it the Mount Olivet Discourse. So if you have uh, a copy of the... uh, Harmony, I have about four copies left for some folks if you need them today. Um, let's see, who wouldn't have one? Ready, you want to pass these around? i got four if people want to use these. The, um, that's not the complete harmony. That's only from this point forward for the, the Passion Week and the uh, post-resurrection events. In this harmony, uh, we have episode 12 and episode 13 of the Passion Week that uh, come from Matthew 24 in episode 12 and Matthew 25 in episode 13. They're broken down into two separate episodes, um, although we typically will combine chapter 24 and 25 together into one large event uh, called the Mount Olivet Discourse. I understand why they're breaking it down. For example, Matthew 24 has parallels in Mark and Luke. Uh, However, Matthew 25 does not. Matthew 25 is unique to Matthew the uh, parables that are given there in, uh, in that 25th chapter. So uh, I understand why the, uh, the authors of this particular harmony uh, put it together the way that they did. And, and we've been using it ever since January of 2004. I'm not going to change now. We'll keep using that harmony, um, uh, including the titles uh, for some of the episodes that I may not be as, as dazzled by. Jesus tells the future. Okay, is that kind of lame? But all right, we'll go with it. Jesus... Tells the future, episode 12. Jesus utters some of the greatest prophetic messages that he gives in his three and a half year public ministry. Uh, This is for Jesus what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, uh, some of the great Old Testament prophets who had much to say regarding Second Advent, regarding uh, the coming kingdom. Uh, You've got to put the Olivet Discourse together with the Old Testament prophets, and together with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, if you're going to have a complete eschatology worth, um, worth the name. So that's what we're going to introduce here starting today. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's really no Bible class you can sit there in carnality and learn anything from, but uh, Mount Olivet Discourse in particular, let's make sure we're in fellowship and humble under the truth of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for our phone call this morning. Father, and I lift up this lady named Deborah. You know who she is, what her needs are. Meet them, provide for them. Father, uh, there's so many folks that don't have a flock. They profess to be saved, and yet, Father, they don't have a flock. They're sheep without a shepherd. And and I pray, Father, that uh, You would... Uh, motivate them to to seek out an assembly where they can be fed and to uh, to submit to your plan. Father, uh, I thank you for these here today that have submitted to your plan, that have taken advantage of the opportunity to assemble together and to receive instruction, to be obedient to the commands that say, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit communicates to the local churches. And so, Father, here we are. We thank you for the, for the uh, uh, all of the discourse. We thank you for this uh, opportunity we have to study and what a privilege we have, Father. We're not tossed to and fro. We're not, we're not hopeless and helpless. We're not looking at current events and despairing about the direction this world's going. Father, we're confident because we know that Jesus Christ controls history. And so we thank you for the opportunity once again today to assemble together. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. It's kind of interesting if you just simply glance at the pericope headings. These are the little publishing blurbs that you find scattered throughout your text, usually at the beginning of chapters or paragraph headings and so forth. Signs of Christ's return, perilous times, the glorious return, parable of the fig tree, 
be ready for his coming. All right, that takes you through 24. You get into chapter 25, you got a parable of ten virgins, parable of the talents, uh, lengthy section there, and then the judgment in verses 31 and following. That's sheep and goats. And so we got a lot to cover. I expect we're going to be uh, in episode 12 and episode 13 for some time uh, detailing the issues here. In particular, not only do we have to teach it verse by verse and very carefully, we also have to uh, highlight some of the bad teaching that's out there, in particular uh, the wrong approaches that try to blend Israel and the church or try to find a rapture message uh, somewhere in, uh, in the context of this. Uh, there's also a fixation upon the phrase, this generation, that uh, we dealt with in chapter 23, that uh, people try to lock in on here in, uh, in chapters 24 and 25 and try to relate this to the events of 70 A.D. in the first century um, related to the generation that crucified Christ. So, well, we've got a lot of work to do, and uh, relax, we'll be able to handle it. We just uh, have to trust the Holy Spirit and His faithfulness to take us uh, verse by verse through Every, uh, everything that he has here for us. Let's start with some context, though. Jesus came out from the temple, we're told. Matthew 24, 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away. And uh, we discussed this a little bit last week because uh, when he saw the widow giving her two mites, he had actually just finished his last sermon in the temple. And he had pronounced all those woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, the great lengthy discourse of chapter 23 with the seven woes. And then he takes his seat and he's waiting for his disciples to come back from wherever they'd gone to. And then uh, he's watching this widow give her two mites and he gathers the disciples together. And he thought he had taught his last Bible class. He's got one more to teach. And he teaches about this faithful widow and the great offering that she gave. Then they're finally ready to leave the temple. And this is, it doesn't say in chapter 24, this is the last time he leaves the, te- the temple. But we know for, in fact, that it is the last time that he leaves the temple. This is Wednesday night. He is uh, departing Jerusalem, having completed his work on Wednesday. He will deliver the Olivet Discourse uh, before uh, retiring uh, Wednesday night. And then the next time he returns to Jerusalem is Thursday, whereby he does not come in the morning to do more temple teaching, Uh, which he'd been doing all week long, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday, he does not come back to Jerusalem to do temple teaching in the morning. Instead, Thursday, they do not return until it's already afternoon, approaching evening, and he sends his disciples in to make sure that the upper room is prepared, that uh, the Passover dinner can uh, can be had. So we're very close to the upper room discourse as well. People get the all of a discourse combined or confused with the upper room discourse, and I think that's half the problem that uh, that we got to sort out. All right, this episode, point one, I like to give context in every episode uh, with point one. This episode combines with the next for what is commonly called the Mount Olivet Discourse. So point one in your outline, this episode, episode 12, Jesus tells the future, Matthew 24. This episode combines with the next, which is episode 13 from Matthew 25. This episode combines with the next for what is commonly called the Mount Olivet Discourse. Mainly because he was on Mount Olivet when he delivered the discourse. <laughs> All right. Not complicated. Um, but some other context. Let's try to, again, fix our bearings of where we are in the Passion Week. Sub point A. During the Passion Week, it was Jesus' practice to teach in the temple each day. Retiring to Mount Olivet each evening. And if you turn over to Luke 21, you'll, you'll notice this. Luke 21, verses 37 and 38. During the Passion Week, it was Jesus' practice. In fact, ever since the previous Saturday, he had been uh, at Bethany. Bethany is on the southeast ridge, the southeast side of Olivet. Olivet is to the east of uh, the Temple Mount. So... Uh, when you're on the southeast side of all of it, that means you're on the uh, the back side of all of it that does not have Jerusalem in view. You work your way around the southern side of, of all of it and you get to the western side and then you can cross in. I'll have a map for you here in just a moment. But this was his practice, not just during the Passion Week, but even a couple days prior uh, when it was uh, six days before the Passover, he was there in the home of Simon. Uh, then on uh, Sunday he was there when there was uh, a great um, excitement about that, about the resurrection of Lazarus. And then on Monday he makes his Palm Monday entrance into Jerusalem. And so from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday uh, he had daily 
teaching in the temple. Luke 21, verses 37 and 38, kind of given as an afterthought. And interestingly enough, this comes at the end of Luke's narrative of, of our very event right now, of event 12, Luke's narrative of the Olivet Discourse. At the end of that, it says, During the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. And so those two verses there give us what is the routine, that is the normal practice during this final week, during the Passion Week. All right. Point B, meals and sleeping were evidently in the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper in Bethany. We have him mentioned by name in Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. He's also mentioned by name in Mark 14, verses 3 through 9. In John's narrative, it is specifically indicated that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are close by. Not, it's not in their home. It's in the home of Simon the leper. But Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are also attending the same dinner that Jesus is attending when Mary anoints his feet with oil. John 12, verses 1 through 8. So meals and sleeping were evidently in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. You'll notice Matthew 26 is later than Matthew 24 and 25. All right. Matthew 26, um, but when we taught it out of John 12, if you remember, I mentioned to you at that time that when Matthew and Mark record it, they're recording it as a, as a flashback. They're recording it as a memory uh, on, the night, on, the, on the night that Judas goes actually out to betray him. Okay. So if you turn with me here to Matthew 26, I think you'll see this again. Verses 6 through 13. And so, um, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. Now, it appears that this is after the Olivet Discourse, but it is a flashback actually, and it's recorded there as a flashback to give the context for what motivated, what motivated Judas to go out and actually contract the betrayal. So in verses 1 through 5, you've got the, uh, the high priest here, the chief priest and the elders gathered together in the court of the high priest and they plotted together to kill Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Uh, again, we've got the time frame in verse 2 that says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. Okay, so we have the, the time frame here. We know we're getting close to, to crucifixion Friday. Um, and so the elders and the chief priests are discussing how to do this plotting together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying not during the feast. Otherwise, a riot might occur because of the people. Not during the feast. So they're really concerned about the, the, the time of day and the location and the crowd. That's why the, the Garden of Gethsemane at midnight was awesome. <laughs> you know, it's out of the way. It's hidden. It's dark. It's, uh, it's, it's during, uh, you know, we can arrest him at night. We can try him at night. Hopefully we can have him dead before the sun comes up kind of a thing. Then when we do get to Matthew 26, 6, it says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. And, and even that phrase, when Jesus was in Bethany, gives you a clue that this is referring to a, a previous time. This is referring to some other time than a strict chronology after verse 5. Uh, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume. We actually discussed this episode already. And, uh, and Judas's uh, uh, problem with it, really all the disciples were upset that uh, this perfume was so costly and they could have sold it and, and, and boosted their benevolence uh, uh, funds. Uh, and then you'll notice in verse 14, then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for good opportunity to betray Jesus. So back when we taught this episode, we mentioned that uh, although Matthew and Mark give the details of these verses two days before the Sabbath, John gives the details six days before the Sabbath. And so how do we reconcile two days before or six days before? Um, I think it's best to reconcile either there were two women anointing his feet with costly oil, but no, the, the event is too similar. It is, it is the same event that it did happen six days before. It happened the previous Saturday, and yet it was 
uh, Matthew and Mark didn't res- didn't record it until as a flashback the night in which Judas actually goes and contracts for the uh, the 30 pieces of silver. So does that make sense? It's uh, in Matthew and Mark. It's a flashback by just a few days, and uh, John gives the best chronology for that. So again, during the Passion Week, it was Jesus' practice to teach in the temple on each day, retiring to Mount Olivet each evening. Meals and sleeping were evidently in the home of Simon the leper. Uh, in Bethany with Lazarus, Mary and Martha close by. And you can get that information out of John 12, verses 1 through 8. Normally, prayer would take place in Gethsemane. Normally, prayer would take place in Gethsemane. Now, Bethany is on the southeast corner of all of it. Um, and uh, Gethsemane is on the western, very lower portion of all of it, really in the ravine between Olivet and Zion, uh, between Mount Olivet and the Temple Mount, okay, and that Kidron valley ravine in between the two the two mountains so normally prayer would take place in gethsemane we got another little clue here in john 18 just doing a little bit of detective work trying to piece together some little bits of information and uh, when you put all the atoms together in a deductive reasoning sort of way you can uh, come to some conclusions but in john 18 we're told that Um, that this was a practice, this was a regular custom. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. That's the north-south ravine in between the Temple Mount and Mount Olivet. Um, Where uh, there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Okay, so we have a clue that uh, prior to this Thursday night, the night in which he's betrayed, that he'd actually been there on previous nights. Okay, well, what previous nights might those have been? He wouldn't have been doing his Galilean ministry or his Perean ministry. I I suspect it was this very week that uh, he was going into the city in the morning. He was coming out in the evenings. They were stopping at this garden for their prayer time. And then they were going uh, the rest of the way into Bethany or wherever the other, uh, the other disciples were going. I suspect that, uh, that uh, the 12 of them weren't all in the same house, that they probably uh, went to a variety of places. All right, so normally prayer would take place in Gethsemane. And uh, we, we get just a little idea of what his routine was like on a daily basis during this final week. Somewhere, finally then point D, somewhere about all of it, a series of powerful prophecies would be delivered two days before the cross. And uh, we don't know if it was actually in the Garden of Gethsemane where this prophecy was uttered, if it was, uh, if it was up higher on the slopes, if it was at the very peak of all of it. Uh, all of it, by the way, doesn't have just a single peak. It really is kind of a, a lumpy ridge thing. I'll show it to you on the map. Um, but somewhere, either in Gethsemane or between Gethsemane and Bethany or somewhere, on the Mount of Olives, uh, a series of powerful prophecies would be delivered two days before the cross. And uh, we have, uh, I already read Matthew 26, 2. It's in agreement with Mark 14, verses 1 and 2. Jesus' own testimony when he finishes. And, you know, when you're just looking at these pages, you got a red letter edition of your Bible there? You know, you're looking at 23, 24, 25. These chapters of Matthew are like blanket red, practically. And then... Uh, he finishes these in chapter 25. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then the chapter starts in 26. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And so we have a very clear, precise statement of time, one that ought to be less confused than it really is. But because uh, they didn't use words like after the way we use words like after, some people think this is actually Tuesday rather than Wednesday. That's all right. It's Wednesday. We can relax about that. Okay. Any questions on the the context there? We'll talk a little bit more about the idea of after two days, after three days, on the third day, um, three days and three nights. We we discussed that at least twice already. We're going to do it again just so that we're very clear that it is a crucifixion Friday, it is a resurrection Sunday, and we don't have any problem with phrases like after three days or after uh, for three days and three nights or on the third day, okay? 
We, uh, we've looked at it before. We've seen the consistent Hebrew usage of it. We have no issues with, with that. that uh, those phrases are not problematic for a Friday crucifixion and a Sunday resurrection. In fact, they demand a Friday crucifixion and a Sunday resurrection. And I think the only confusion arises in because we don't use those prepositions the same way that they did in that time. All right. If, if I'm going to say after three days, I mean on the fourth day, don't I? Okay. And, uh, you know, here we are on Wednesday and uh, we're going to come back again on Sunday. So that'll be on the fourth day after three days. Okay. They didn't they didn't use the same uh, prepositional thought structure that we have. And so we've talked about it before. We'll do it again uh, when we get to the cross so that we're uh, we're clear on the time frame there. All right. I just think some of it, though, is is where we've ended up with Wednesday crucifixion dates and Thursday crucifixion traditions. And uh, we've ended up with, uh, and, and truthfully, I think the only reason we ended up with a Palm Sunday uh, instead of a Palm Monday was because, you know, the Roman church needed a Sunday feast for their <laughs> for their calendar. Because um, there's really no good reason to not have a Palm Monday. Uh, they have, it's interesting, though, that they, they insist on the Palm Sunday, and then they have what they call the Silent Wednesday. And the reason why it's a Silent Wednesday is because they can't find anything to go there. And so they've got all these events on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, the mysterious Silent Wednesday where, I guess, Jesus went bowling or something, and then Thursday for the, the Last Supper and, and the traditional crucifixion date on Friday. All right, point two then. As they depart the temple, the disciples express how awesome it appears to them how awesome it appears to them prompting jesus to prophesy his complete destruction (laughs) down to the very last stone down to the very last stone and for this i actually like mark's narrative i mean we can read them all they're they're similar but mark's is the most expressive mark 13 1 As he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what what wonderful buildings. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Isn't it impressive? You know, absolutely impressive. Same thing happens today. People get all jazzed about a beautiful, uh, you know, specimen of architecture. Luke 21, 5. While some were talking about the temple that was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Beautiful stones and votive gifts. And then finally, Matthew 24, 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. All right. So the disciples are impressed. How awesome it appears to them. Prompting Jesus to prophesy its complete destruction. Its complete destruction down to the very last stone. Now, we're going to consider this because uh, is Jesus a false prophet or a true prophet? All right. Is this going to happen? It's going to happen after 33 AD when he speaks it? All right. When's it going to be fulfilled? Now, what's kind of interesting, I'm still open uh, to what he was referencing here. Most people say, well, it was 70 A.D. and, and General Titus destroyed Jerusalem and Titus, who would very quickly after that succeed and become Emperor Titus. But um, he was not emperor when he destroyed it. He was just a general when he destroyed the temple. But it says down to the very last stone. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can stand. I can even show you a live webcam right now of the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And so it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of debate. And um, a lot of men that I know and respect have taught this in different ways. That, uh, that this passage is actually waiting a second advent fulfillment. Uh, others say, no, uh, this was fulfilled in 70 AD. The stones that you see now... They were really part of a retaining wall. They were part of uh, the temple complex. They were kind of some of the, they weren't the actual temple itself, so it counts. Okay. (laughs) Well, you can tell me it counts, but Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So 
you know, there's, there's different ways to understand that. And, and you could look at the stones that are still very heavy, very tall, very stepped on top of each other, you know, um, that say, well, it hadn't been fulfilled yet. It's still waiting a second hand of fulfillment. Or maybe it doesn't count. Maybe it wasn't the temple site. There's even a, a group that says that uh, archaeology has actually been off all this time. And where the Muslims put their mosque was not the actual Temple Mount. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that is proven. Clearly, when Christ comes back, he'll make it very clear this is where the Temple belongs. And uh, no, one will, no one will argue after that. So we're going to discuss, in particular, um, and that's what we're going to divide. We've got to be careful in how we rightly divide the Word of Truth and how do we um, declare that this is absolutely fulfilled. We want to be very careful with that because uh, even things that have, there are prophecies that will have a partial fulfillment that are still waiting a more complete future total fulfillment, you'll recognize. Like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by Joel. But it was not the complete fulfillment of that which was spoken by Joel because that's looking forward to Second Advent. There are other things similar to that whereby, um, you know, the, the fulfillment of the coming of the forerunner. Well, in a way that was fulfilled by John the Baptist. But guess what? In a way that was not fulfilled by John the Baptist and is still waiting Elijah's return uh, and his forerunner ministry at Second Advent. You understand? So let me give you some of these other points here as well. And let's spend some time on this because this, this is... Uh, I won't say it's more important than the message itself, but it's actually a bonus that if we can lock in on this now before we even start the chapter, uh, we do ourselves so many favors for some things coming up. All right. Peter, James, John, and Andrew are going to lead the private questioning. Peter, James, John, and Andrew lead the private question. This is not a public sermon. This is not for the Pharisees. This is not for the Jews. This is only for his disciples. And specifically, the leadership role is taken up, we're told in Mark 13.3, by the four closest disciples. Remember when you, when you break down the... Do you remember when we taught the dodecapostolog? Remember that? Remember the word dodecapostolog? Wow. Uh, that's the listing of the twelve apostles. Okay? And every time the twelve are listed, these four are the first four listed every time. And Peter is always the first one listed every time. Sometimes the other three within that foursome are scrambled, but this is the, the golf foursome that, you know, the, this is the, the first third of that list. The second third of the list is always led by Philip. And then the final third, the final four disciples, which always includes Judas Iscariot mentioned last, uh, is uh, in, uh, in, in that order there. Anyway, you, you know, study that, you can study that again. Uh, but here's Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and we read it. Uh, in Matthew, it just says some uh, the disciples came up to him privately. The disciples came up to him privately. But in Mark, we specifically are told that it's these four. It is his closest four. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. So I don't think it's actually in Gethsemane. I think it's further up the slope where they can actually look out across and see the temple with a little bit better view. We should have already passed the slide that has my map on it. I think I forgot to put my map in there. All right. That's all right. I'll have it for next week. So as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? All right, now I know I'm bouncing back and forth. Uh, are, you in, where, are you in the Mark record with me now, looking at Mark? It seems to be a two-part question there in Mark. It's a when and a what. When will these things happen? When will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are going to be fulfilled? It's a very basic when and what. When will these things be? What are, what are these things? Okay. And what will be the sign? In Luke, it's very similar. Luke 21, 7. I want to take the time to look at all of these so that you can see for yourself the way the questions are formed and how the answers are given. 
Luke 21, 7, they questioned him saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Very similar to Mark's wording. Again, it's concerned about these things. It's asking when and what. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign related to these things? But in the Matthew question, it's a little bit more involved than that. In the Matthew question, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? There's the when question. And what will be the sign of your coming? That's a little bit different. That's a little bit different than these things. The tearing down of the temple and, and additional things beyond the tearing down of the temple. So Matthew records the, the when question that Mark and Luke had, but then he goes on and asks a couple of others. Really a three-part question. What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? He breaks down the sign question into two parts. Your coming and the end of the age. So the questions as recorded by Matthew are much more comprehensive than the questions as recorded by Mark and Luke. And the questions are interesting, but the answers are even more interesting because the answers have a lot of conf- the questions have a lot of confusion in them. The answers, of course, have all the truth. <laughs> and if the questions are asked out of order, well, the Lord is actually faithful to give the answers in the right order. And I'll uh, give you the outline on that here in the subpoints. So subpoint A, all I, all I want you to do at this point is just simply recognize where the questions can be found and how they're slightly different. Now, understand, first of all, the Olivet Discourse is a private message to his disciples. All three Gospels made it very clear that the disciples came to him privately. This is not a public message. Nothing in the text indicates that there are crowds nearby, Pharisees nearby, scribes, Jews, anybody except Jesus and disciples. That's all we have in uh, all three of these synoptic gospel records. In other words, it is not a warning. The first century rejectors of Christ are not warned. The first century rejectors of Christ are not warned. But the tribulational disciples of Christ will certainly... (laughs) You better believe they're going to pay close attention. This all of a discourse is probably going to be memorized first right off the bat by every one of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists and everybody they lead to Christ during the tribulational age. Because this is the Lord's message regarding the days that they're going to find themselves in. Between this discourse and Revelation 6 through 19, uh, I, I can't think of any other passage of the Bible that tribulational believers are going to be more... Uh, <laughs> more concerned about i don't suspect they're going to spend a lot of time in their bible classes teaching song of solomon or <laughs> exodus i expect they're going to be in the olivet discourse they're going to be in revelation they're going to be in uh second thessalonians chapter two with the man of lawlessness they're going to be in daniel they're going to be in zechariah they're going to be in all the prophets that speak of the time of jacob's trouble the first century rejectors of Christ are not warned. You remember when uh, they started, the, the early, early, when John the Baptist first started ministering and, and all the Jews, the Pharisees, everybody was coming out of Jerusalem to be baptized. What did he tell them? He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, they weren't the recipients of his warning. And, and it ended up coming anyway because the, the, the word got around and the, the fame and the popularity of, of John the Baptist got to be undeniable. But still, his statement stands, they were not the recipients of his warning. Why, were, why are you even here? Why are you even here? This, this warning's not for you. All right. Is there something outside? Is our building buzzing? Okay. All right. Maybe there was a new fire alarm I didn't know about or something. Okay. It's not their warning. Not once are they warned. There will be warnings contained, but it's contained to those who are in Jerusalem when they see the abomination in the temple. 
But it's not a warning for first century Israel. It was not fulfilled in 70 A.D. As the false approach to this chapter would have you to believe. It is eschatological. It's looking forward to Antichrist. The abomination in the temple is the image of the beast that the false prophet will set up in the temple. He will take his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. That is still future. That is still future. Not fulfilled in the first century. All right. The disciples' questions and the Lord's answers must be carefully sorted out. Point B. The disciples' questions and the Lord's answers must be carefully sorted out. And I think when you do this properly, the rest of the chapter and chapter 25 um, just falls into line and makes a whole lot more sense. If you understand the structure of the questions and the order in the response. Unfortunately, we just had this not too long ago in... PMW, this was very recently uh, in Christology that we went through Schaefer's development of the Olivet Discourse just a few weeks ago. All right. We start with the time inquiries, the when questions, the subpoint one. The time inquiries. In other words, when. Human beings are creatures of time. You probably noticed that. And uh, we, we get... We get wrapped up in terms of time. When will these things happen? And you might imagine it's very much on their mind because they've completed 69 of the sevens. Palm Monday, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, humble, riding on a colt, is the day after the 69th seven is done. And yet the 70th seven has not yet started. And so the idea that we're in between the 69th seven and the 70th seven, that's right where they are. They're just two days after the 69th seven's over. This is Wednesday night of that week. And so the, the time inquiry is very critical. If you need more on that, we've got it in the Daniel and Revelation series, specifically Daniel chapter 7. I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 9. All right, the time inquiries, the when question, locked in on the prophesied destruction of Jerusalem, as well as, we're not even entirely sure what, additional things spoken of in that context. Because they keep asking these things, these things, plural. And so we must assume that he must have discussed other things related to the destruction of the temple. He said, not one stone will be left on top of another one. There must have been additional information. We don't even know what. But they are clearly asking this question in response to the Lord's uh, message that not one stone will be left upon another. I think very clearly in this context, if you glance back up two verses into chapter 23, the immediate context for this indicates, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That part of the these things Jesus must have been teaching on that night included not only the destruction of the temple, but the desolate house of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling there's the will of God and there's the will of man. And it's God's will that He created man in volitional accountability and we reap what we sow. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, it will require Israel's national repentance for second advent to transpire. Your house is being left to you desolate. Not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This is the these things context when they keep asking, when will these things happen? It's the destruction of the temple. It's the desolate house. So the time inquiries locked in on the prophesied destruction of Jerusalem as well as the additional things spoken of in that context called these things in, in all three of the synoptic accounts. Matthew Mark and Luke. Now, I think additional things spoken of in that context clearly included Jerusalem and her desolate house. Not just the temple. The whole city is going to be leveled. 
the walls, the city, the houses, the population that are going to be carried off, those that actually live through the, uh, the capture, won't be many. But we have that when you back up to Matthew 23:38. Also, when you take a look at Luke 21:20, in the context there, in, in Luke 21, the narrative of this of this episode. The additional things spoken of in that context clearly include Jerusalem and her desolate house. In Luke 21, it's interesting because it says, "When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near." Same term. It's a noun form. Your house is being left to you desolate. Adjectival form. But uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. He was talking about the military conquest of the city and the complete destruction of the temple. Now, in that light, we need to consider, is he talking about the first century Roman destruction under Titus? Or is he talking about the eschatological destruction under eschatological Rome, okay? what we call prophetic Rome. See, today we're in between. Today we got historic Rome you know, that fell in the 4th century, and then we got prophetic Rome, that is the revived Roman Empire as it's reformed, as it will exist in the tribulational time. The regional empire followed by global empire that the Bible describes as being prophetic Rome, end times Rome. All right? So, I mean, it's a legitimate question. I'm going to explore that here in some of these subpoints. We've got, to, we've got to think about it. Now, fortunately, our job is easier than it was back in, say, Isaiah's time frame or Moses' time frame or David because when they prophesied of Jerusalem's destruction and the captivity of the people, they could have been talking about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon destroying the temple. Destroying Jerusalem and taking Israel captive. Or they could have been talking about Titus and the first century Romans. Or they could have been talking about Antichrist and the eschatological uh, second advent of Jesus Christ. You see, because the further you back up, when all you're doing is just looking forward to the destruction of Jerusalem, what might you be looking at? Looking forward to the destruction of Jerusalem. You've got more options the further back you go. But when you're talking about Daniel and you're already past the destruction of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, then looking forward, now you've, you've taken one off the table. It's not even possible anymore. You're looking forward to Rome. Okay, I'm going to spell that out for you here in the subpoints. Actually, I'll get down to it in uh, points five and six. All right. So that's the when question. When. But then the what questions. The signs. The sign inquiries. The problem with the sign inquiries, the what questions, are hampered. They're actually flawed questions. The sign inquiries are hampered by finite and flawed understanding that only envisions a single temple destruction. They're only envisioning a single temple destruction. whether you're looking at Mark's record or Luke's record of the question. This finite and flawed understanding also links the temple destruction with Jesus' return and the end of the age. This finite and flawed understanding also links the temple destruction with Jesus' return and the end of the age. Mark and Luke wanted to know what will be the sign of these things happening, the temple being destroyed. Matthew phrases it, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, equating those as synonymous, interchangeable events. And in all cases, there's only a single destruction in view. There is nothing that, uh, that uh, the disciples betray any knowledge or awareness that this temple is going to be destroyed in the near term and then millennia will pass before a new temple will be built, one in which Antichrist will defile, one in which Antichrist will destroy, all right, before the second advent of Jesus Christ. 
We'll talk about that also. But even uh, the idea of signs, when you're asking for a sign, who asked for a sign? Israel. Israel. Jews seek for a sign. Okay? Signs are for Israel. What signs do we have in the church? Thank you. Yeah. When you read from Romans to Jude, what, uh, what's, what's the sign of anything? <laughs> All right. The only signs that we have in the church age were the attesting miracles that gave the uh, authorization to the apostles and prophets for the writing of the New Testament text. When the canon of Scripture is complete, there are no more signs provided. There are no more miracle gifts. There are no more signs provided. We have no signs of the imminent rapture. When you're dealing with signs, uh, Semeon, that's usually your biggest clue right there that you're in an Israel context. You're not in a church context. Church has no signs. All right, finite and flawed understanding also links the temple destruction with Jesus' return and the end of the age. They're partially correct on that, actually. Uh, but the temple destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the, uh, the wrath of God that's poured out is part of the discipline upon Israel that actually humbles them to be able to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In order for national Israel to receive their king with positive volition, they must go through the time of Jacob's trouble. Nothing less than that will humble the Jewish people. And that itself is a study worth, uh, worth pursuing. All right, now, the questions may be flawed, but the answers, of course, are perfect. And that's where we want to focus our attention in our study. The Lord's answers, this is subpoint four. So, main point three, subpoint B, subpoint four. The Lord's answers, as recorded in the synoptic narratives, were more specific than the disciples realized. More specific than the disciples realized. And when the Lord's answers are carefully sorted out, a fuller and clearer understanding of Jerusalem eschatology will result. When the Lord's answers are carefully sorted out, a fuller and clearer understanding of Jerusalem eschatology will result. In other words, we're not going to focus on the questions, although the questions help us to understand what the subject matter is. It's the Lord's answers whereby he answers questions 1, 2, and 3 in uh, a slightly different order. All right. He answers question 1 in Luke. He doesn't answer question 1 in Matthew or Mark at all. He answers question 2 and 3 in Matthew and in Mark, but he does so in reverse order. He answers them the, the sign of his coming before he answers the sign of uh, the end of the age. So we'll talk about that as well. The Lord's answers are carefully sorted out. A fuller and clearer understanding of Jerusalem eschatology will result. Now, how does this have anything to do with the church? <laughs> Is Jerusalem our holy city? So, I mean, I tried doing this too in Kiev with the Bible college students there in Ukraine. And we're in Daniel chapter 9 and we're reading... Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. And I stop him and I say, now, who were Daniel's people? Were they the Ukrainians? You know, what's the holy city there? Is that Kiev? No, it's the Jewish people. Daniel was Jewish. His holy city was Jerusalem. This is the dispensation of Israel. We've got to understand the program for Israel. The time of Jacob's trouble is for Israel, not for the church. And so we can do the same thing here. It's not uh, Daniel's people are not the Texans and his holy city is not Austin, Texas. We don't find anything related to uh, anything here pertaining to us and the church at all. All right. Point four. The disciples must be forgiven their ignorance as no prophet of Israel prior to Jesus ever distinguished the two advents of Messiah with any clarity. The disciples must be forgiven their ignorance. As no prophet of Israel prior to Jesus ever distinguished the two advents of Messiah with any clarity. 
How many times have I taken you to 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12? Several times. Okay? If I've taken you there 30 times, that's still not enough. <laughs> I'll take you there 30 more times in the next 30 years. It still won't be enough. We've got to understand where we are in the church, the nature of the mystery age, the nature of the wisdom of God in reserving certain things to where not only did human prophets not have a clue, the angels didn't have a clue that this coming age was uh, the centerpiece of the Father's plan. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. No prophet in the Old Testament ever distinguished clearly the two advents. In fact, they usually combined them into a single advent message. Sometimes in the same verse. You'd have first advent and second advent elements all combined, mashed together into a single verse. All Old Testament messianic prophecies, therefore, can be categorized as first and or second advent prophecies. And you can have fun with that. I, know I realize there's some Bible helps and tools out there that have already done the work for you, but go ahead and do the work yourself. Go find every messianic prophecy in the Old Testament and then color code it. Was this first advent or second advent? Okay. You know, born of a virgin. First advent. Uh, coming with his angels to inflict wrath on the unbelievers. Second advent. Okay. Most of them aren't very tough. You can, you can handle it. But some are actually both. First and second. Read Isaiah 61. You've got to blend a first and second advent together. And Jesus had to stop his reading in the middle of the verse, roll up the scroll, hand it back to the guy and take a seat to say, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If he would have finished the very next clause from the very next verse, or even if he finished the verse he stopped in, then he would have gone into some second advent areas and couldn't have said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So we, we, when, you, when you look at Isaiah 61, when you relate it to, to Luke 4, do that study and, and, and bless yourself by identifying the hermeneutic Jesus employed when handling the Old Testament. And then you and I can embrace the same hermeneutic and realize that this is God's provision for us to understand how to handle the Scriptures that He's revealed. All right. So all Old Testament Messianic prophecies, therefore, can be categorized as first or second Advent prophecies, or both. They could be blended. That's why I put the and or in there. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. All right. Are they slugs? Careful searches and inquiries. Is somebody buzzing? No? It's your phone. Okay. All right. Has a pastor ever thrown his mother out of church in the history of the... <laughs> I bet you the colonel would have done it. You know he would have done it. That's why they didn't invent cell phones when his colonel's mother was still alive. All right. <laughs> I tell you. The prophets who prophesied of old made careful searches and inquiries. They weren't dummies. They weren't sloppy. They were careful students. What was Daniel doing? Searching the Scriptures, reading Jeremiah. And inquiries, wrestling with the Lord. A prophet could actually go to Yahweh Elohim and get his answers. He could inquire of the Lord, and the word of the Lord would come to him. And seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. Are there two Christs, or is there one Christ with two advents, two comings? And they never were told. As, they, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Man, we've got a suffering Messiah. We've got a glorious Messiah. This doesn't seem to make sense. Is it two different Messiahs? Or is it one Messiah coming twice? And no prophet prior to Jesus ever distinguished the two with clarity. Jesus now distinguishes between the two. He says, your house is being left to you desolate. From now on, you will not see me again until the one Christ comes back his second time. Now it's been revealed. 
And we in the church are spoiled because we're in between. We have the hindsight and the foresight. We're in between to look back to first advent, look forward to second advent. And we are best positioned to rightly divide the word of truth. Yeah, we still goof it up. (laughs) But let's understand this for what it is. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The church age is the manifestation of the wisdom of God. That the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Things that angels would long to look. Angels had briefings. Angels had a a book called The Writing of Truth. And uh, Gabriel was able to teach Daniel some things out of, he says, come, I will show you what's written in the writings of truth. Angels have things, uh, records available to them beyond, of course, what the, the Hebrews had available to them, but they didn't have church age information. It was purposely withheld, reserved in the wisdom of God. We've got we to gotta appreciate that. All right, so, point five. Jerusalem and temple destruction prophecies. I try to come up with an abbreviation for that, but JTDP didn't do anything for me. Jerusalem and temple destruction prophecies require careful searches and inquiries. I stole that phrase from 1 Peter chapter 1. The prophets who prophesied of old made careful searches and inquiries. You and I better make careful searches and inquiries as we study the Scriptures. Temple destruction prophecies require careful searches and inquiries similar to a couple of things. And under point five, I'm going to give you similar to dispersion and regathering of Israel prophecies. Similar to dispersion and regathering of Israel prophecies. If a prophet says, you disobedient rebels, the Lord is going to scatter you from the land. And then when you repent, he'll bring you back. What do you think he's talking about? That Old Testament prophet, what do you think he's talking about? Or that New Testament prophet, what do you think he's talking about? You've got to be careful. Because this could be referencing the Babylonian captivity. This could be referencing the Babylonian captivity. When Moses said in Deuteronomy that if you obey my law, I'll bless you. If you disobey my law, I'll curse you. Taking, you know, Leviticus 26 takes him through the sixth cycle of discipline, national dispersion. What do you think happened when Assyria carried away the northern ten tribes and Babylon took away the southern two tribes? Moses' prophecies were being fulfilled. And they were dispersed. They were also brought back. Many of them. And so we've got to rightly divide the word of truth. We've got to recognize, you know what? There was a Babylonian captivity in return. Could that have been what the prophet was speaking of? But then there's also a global dispersion in return prior to second advent. That's what's going on today. That's still going on. That's going to keep going on until Jesus Christ sends the angels to gather all Israel from the four corners of the earth. That's still going on today. Admittedly, there's a sizable Jewish population in the land, but they're there not in faith. And they're there not having been regathered by the Lord's angels. And so, similar to dispersion and regathering prophecies, we've got to be careful with how we handle temple destruction prophecies. Because there could be more than one follow-up could be more than one event that these prophecies could be describing but i'll have to break that down for you next week because we're out of time it is 11 o'clock if you have any questions on any of this uh you can come back tonight we'll have questions uh, no you got a question right now uh-huh Did Titus destroy the temple in AD 70? Yes. Uh-huh. I believe the Jews do. Uh, that, uh, that he, because he puts a stop to sacrifices. 
So it was a Jewish temple with Jewish sacrifices that Antichrist will stop halfway through the tribulation. So the third temple, I mean, they've got plans for it right now. They've already constructed the furnishings. They've already constructed the uniforms. Um, there's a Temple Mount Foundation right now. That's already, that's, you can donate. You can go on their website and donate. They are ready to build the temple. They just need to get rid of that mosque that's sitting up there. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, same thing, basically. The tabernacle came first, and then it wasn't necessary anymore after, the, after Solomon built the temple. Uh-huh. Want to go another hour? Yeah, I'm okay with it. Actually, this is a short study week. I had Monday, I had Tuesday. All I have is this afternoon left. I don't have Thursday and Friday as study days for uh, for this week. So anyway, let's close in prayer and uh, we'll come back tonight. Prayer meeting at 6.30. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your promises. And Father, you are not a liar. Every promise is true. And Father, for that we thank you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.